Okay, I have been loving our study through the book of Acts. I I hope you're enjoying it as well. I hope you're growing in your walk with Christ and your understanding of Scripture. So last time, uh, last week, we looked at Saul's conversion, Acts chapter 9. We saw how Jesus saves his worst enemies. And the radical truth behind that is that you and I were one of them. We were one of his enemies. As the scripture we read earlier said, we were children of wrath. But by the grace of God, by his mercy, uh, he has radically brought us from death to life. The truth that we talked about last week is that none of us deserve to be redeemed. And yet Jesus called us out of darkness into his light. That's what happened to Saul on the road. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, that's what's happened to you. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul's going to write it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a radical truth. And we celebrate in that grace today. So here's some more good news. You are called out of darkness into light, but you're not alone. That's one of the songs, uh, one of the messages of one of the songs we sang today is that uh, you're actually called into a people. You, You are called out of darkness to belong to a people, the church of Jesus Christ. You're not alone in this world. This is a truth that Saul's going to learn in our text today. He's going to go through some really difficult trials, some hardship, hard time. And he's going to find that there are brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ to to rally around him through those struggles. Do you remember in John chapter four? It's one of my favorite stories. So I'm sure you, you, you remember this. I've told you probably many times, but Jesus went through Samaria. He met with the woman at the well and through a long conversation, she said, You know, I don't know if you're right about all this, but I know that one day the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus rocked her world when he looked back at her and he just said, I am he. It was such a shocking reality that, you know, she left her water pot there at the well. She ran back to the city proclaiming, you guys got to come. I think this man is the Christ. And through her testimony... The whole city welcomes Jesus and many more came to faith in Christ. They came to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, Saul, when he met met Christ for the first time on the road to Damascus, he immediately began to preach as well. He 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 went to the city and, and started to proclaim the gospel of Jesus also. But his sermons didn't go quite as well as hers did. I mean, for him, it was sort of a total flop. It wasn't that the messages weren't good. It's just they weren't well received. The people that heard him preach wanted to kill him. That was the reaction. So today, one thing I want us to talk about is why. Here's a big question for the day that I hope we will answer along the way. Why do people hate the good news of Jesus? I want this to resonate in our hearts because uh, Jesus talked about it in John 3. He said, uh, light has come into the world, but the world hated it. The good news of the gospel, the good news of salvation. Why do people hate that news? Hate it so much they're willing to kill to make it stop. Willing to um, throw stones at a man to silence him. Well, we'll spend a little time there today, but before we do, let's actually read our text together. So I would like for you to stand 
with me in honor of God's word in Acts chapter 9. We will begin in verse 19. As you know, this is picking up the text where Saul has met Christ on the road. Uh, He's been knocked off his animal. He's been blinded by the light. Jesus spoke to him and said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Then Jesus sent Ananias to him to lay hands on him, to give him a a ministry and say, you're going to be a witness to the Gentiles. And something like scales fell off his eyes. And then Saul was baptized into the body of believers. And that's where we pick up our text right now. In verse 19, the Bible says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. Who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Lord Jesus, this is your word about you. So, Lord, this morning, I pray for your people, your bride, that as we dig into the word of God, the truth about Jesus Christ would wash over us. Lord, may we be encouraged And inspired and walk out of here boldly proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there's some amazing things in this text that I just want to take note of before we really dig into a few main thoughts for the day. All right, so just a couple of things that that I think are amazing that uh, I would like for us to just mention. First thing I notice in reading this text is that Saul is confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. You know, and they want to kill him for that message. Well, in chapters six and seven, there was another guy preaching the same message with the same outcome. And his name was Stephen. Stephen 
was so persuasive with the truth about Christ that no one could disprove what he was saying. In Acts chapter 6, verse 10, this is what the Bible says about Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen was teaching about Jesus in a way that no one could argue with with the truth he was saying. They, They couldn't argue with his message, so they attacked the man. Saul was on the wrong side of Stephen's argument. He was among those who were... Uh, confounded, puzzled, bewildered by Stephen's preaching. He was among those that wanted to say that's not true, but he couldn't. And so rather than refute the argument, rather than refute the message, he stood in approval over Stephen's murder. Saul was there. Another observation is that Stephen's last words As the stones were silencing this messenger, his last words were a prayer that God would forgive his murderers. Do you guys remember that? Stephen prayed just like Jesus. Father, don't hold this sin against them. One thing I see in this passage is that God answers that prayer specifically for the life of Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul deserved judgment for his hand in the murder of Stephen, in the martyrdom of Stephen. He deserved judgment, but instead he receives mercy and grace. Now Saul, ironically, has taken up the mantle of the very one he murdered. This is the the crazy thing about the Lord is that he's sovereignly in control and he's going to advance his mission And Saul, who chose to be among the murderers, is now the one who's picked up Stephen's mantle, is carrying that baton and preaching that message. I find it beautifully ironic that Saul is now preaching the same gospel, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, to the same rejecting Jews. The Lord is in control. So in our passage today, what we see is Saul preaches boldly. He suffers greatly. And then he finds a new family in the church. So I want to unlock those truths together. I just want to dig in and with three key ideas. So here they are. The first one is Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. That's Saul's message. Uh, that's what he proclaims. And that's a truth that I think we need to grip, get a grip on. I wonder if I asked you right now, what does it mean That Jesus is the son of God. How would you answer that? Would you would you know what that means? Part of my hope in this message today is that you'll walk away knowing what to say. You'll, You'll know the truth about what Saul is preaching when he says Jesus is the son of God. But Let's just walk into it a moment. When Saul met Jesus on the road at the beginning of Acts 9 in verse 5, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And Saul doesn't say another word in this chapter until verse 20. When he preaches the answer that he received. Look at the gap, the 15 verse gap between Saul's word. He says, who are you, Lord? And then 15 verses later, Saul's next words are, he is the son of God. 
I absolutely love this because in those 15 verses separating Saul's words, they are the difference between the kingdom of darkness, who are you, and the kingdom of light. He's the son of God. So what's the response to Saul's message? How do, how do the people react when they hear the words that Saul's preaching? What do they do? Well, first, they're amazed at the transformation of the man. If you're taking notes, transformation is the blank there, all right? So they're amazed at the transformation of the man. These Jews, they knew Saul. He had a reputation. He was that guy who left a wake of destruction in Jerusalem. This was the man who had pulled people out of their homes and had them arrested. Men, women, didn't matter to him. Everyone knew what he stood for, what he stood against, and you better not get in his way. He's a powerful man. And in fact, he had come to Damascus on a mission with the backing of the authorities so that when he came, he could bring the heat. This is what Saul was coming to do. But this is not the man that they had expected. When he finally does arrive in Damascus, his demeanor is different. He's humble instead of proud. He's kinder instead of harsh. He's gentle. He's more loving and so on and so on. But then there's the biggest transformation. Can you just imagine? This guy is telling us to believe in Jesus. Didn't he used to stand totally against the way? Drag people out who were belonging to the way? Why? Why? What's happened? What has changed his mind? Well, Saul had met Jesus alive. He wasn't dead. It's not a myth. It's not just a set of morals with another good teacher as its leader. Jesus himself knocked Saul off his horse and gave him instructions. This is a game changer. Here's what I want to say to us. True transformation is the most compelling story to be told. You have a story. If you've truly met Jesus and been saved, you are not who you once were. Amen? Amen. You may not be yet who you want to be, but he's not finished with you yet. So let your progress be to his praise. Saul transformed because he met Christ. We all have a story to share about how Jesus has radically changed us. So let's let the world be amazed at our transformation, not for our glory, but for his. They're not only amazed, but the Bible says that they were confounded by the truth of the message. I want to spend a few minutes here. This will just be a a bit of teaching. Okay, I hope this is helpful and encouraging to you. But the Bible says that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. A little bit of background on Saul. You know, he's a special believer in Jesus because he's coming out of the Jewish faith. He believed in the one true God. He believed in the Bible, at least what he had of it, what scriptures were available to him. Saul was a teacher of the Torah, of the scripture. 
He was a diligent disciple of the law and the prophets and the writings of wisdom and poetry. He, he had most of the scripture memorized. He was devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These were his devotions. Saul had all the pieces of the puzzle, but he had not yet seen the image on the cover of the box. He was looking for the coming Messiah, but he had looked right past Jesus. He thought this Jesus movement was a threat to his religion, when in reality, Jesus was the fulfillment of his religion. The light of Christ shone in his heart, and he saw for the first time the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine... Clark Griswold. Y'all know who I'm talking about? Okay. Clark Griswold had all the things for Christmas, right? Clark Griswold, many strands of bulbs, all the decorations, all the stuff he'd stapled all over the roof and all of the things, all the pieces in position. The inflatables are tied off and ready. Every detail's handled. Not one place is untouched on this man's house, right? It's his his pride and joy is to put together this display. But something's missing. Just then, Cousin Eddie walks over. My best cousin Eddie, I don't know. He comes over, puts his arm around Clark, says, Well, Clark, you going to turn them on? Without all the details here of the movie, with the master switch flipped. The beautiful lights all go hot. The motorized Santa starts dancing. The blow-up Frosty is looking proud. And the life-size train is jugging around the tracks. And suddenly, every detail that had been carefully laid out finds its glorious place. Similarly, Saul had all the pieces. But they never really made sense. But now... The light of Christ pulls it all together. All the law, all the prophets, all the sacrifices, the covenants of God. It all makes sense in Jesus. It's always all been about him. That's glorious truth. And for Saul, it was the first time he knew what to do with all the pieces of the puzzle. He had seen the box. And it was the face of Jesus Christ. So Saul's gospel message is very simple. It's two things, really. I'm going to spend just a moment on these two truths. Saul says, Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. So I want to at least maybe help you see what he means when he says that. This identity claim for Jesus has to mean at least these two things. First, Jesus is God. Now that may not shock us, but there are places in the world where that's a shocking statement. Paul's going to write later extensively about Christ. You know, Thirteen books of our New Testament are believed to be written by the Apostle Paul, who is Saul in our text. He's going to say in Colossians 2 verse 9, he's going to say in him, in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
He's going to say in Philippians 2 verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. I also love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 when he says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the whole world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the very imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. If we go back into the Gospels for just a moment, let me walk through some statements about Jesus as the Son of God. In Luke 4, verse 41, it's the first time this declaration is made, and guess who makes it? Demons. Jesus has cast out some demons, and they bow down before Him, and these demons say, You are the Son of God. And Jesus forces them to be silent because it's not time for that news to get out. In Luke 22, verse 70, Jesus standing before his accusers just before he's to be hauled off to be crucified. In Luke twenty-two seventy, the accusers say, Are you the Son of God then? To which Jesus replied, It is as you say. It's a bold claim. In Matthew 16, Jesus has asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Some said, you're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? After some ideas were tossed about Peter in verse 16, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that answer by saying, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter, but my father who's in heaven. In talking with his disciples, In John 14, Jesus is about to leave them. He's telling them, I'm going to go, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And Philip's like, well, where are you going? Why can't we go with you? And he said, well, I'm going to my father. And Philip says, well, show us the father. And Jesus says, I've been with you all this time. Don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So here's the reality. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when Paul, Saul, is making that statement, he is the son of God, what he's saying is Jesus is God. That's the beauty of the incarnation is that God, the son, became a son of man. Now, why does this matter? And why is this a gospel truth? Well, it matters because no man can save Mankind. There is not a man on the planet worthy enough to rescue you or me from our sin. Only the God man, Jesus Christ, can rescue. He's the only one who can do it. He is fully God and he came to be fully man. Jesus alone is the savior of the whole world. So whether you're in Ethiopia, Lithuania, Hong Kong, or Anniston, Alabama, Jesus is your only hope. That leads us to the second reality. Jesus is God. And secondly, Saul is preaching to us that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is Savior. When he uses the word Christ, Saul was proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. 
That's a reference back to all these words that mean anointed one, the Messiah, the the king to come, the king of a forever throne. All these words from the Old Testament are pointing to this new this new king, this new redeemer, this new rescuer who's going to take the throne of David. Jesus is a saving king. And the reality we've been seeing in the book of Acts is that there is no other savior. There is no other God who can rescue mankind. Jesus stands alone as the only way. He himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made a bold claim there. He said, if you want to get to God, you have to go through me. I am the only Savior. And here's a a stark reality that is not popular today. Christianity is inclusively exclusive. I want you to hear me say that again. And I I want the truth of that statement to just sit on us. Christianity is inclusively exclusive. Here's what I mean. Anyone can be saved. But they must call on the name of Jesus. Anyone can be saved. But there's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. That's the message of the book of Acts as we've read so far. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes on them at Pentecost. Peter preaches that first sermon and he quotes from Joel 2. And here's what Joel 2 verse 32 says. Anyone can be saved. Let me quote it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But listen, everyone who calls, that's inclusive, right? Anybody can be included. Everyone who calls, but it's exclusive on the name of the Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Christ. There's not another There is no other savior. The early apostles stood on this truth. You know, in the face of arrests and beatings and and hardship, they stood boldly to say in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, the world would have you to believe in universalism. I don't know if you know that term. But in essence, here's what it means. You can believe in whatever God you want. They're all the same. It doesn't matter if you call God this name or that name or this name or that name. Long as you're wholeheartedly devoted to your God, it's all going to be okay. You, You know, God's up here and there's just many paths up to God. You can take whatever. This is the path I've chosen and you choose that path. We'll all get there. It's okay. That's a lie. It's no, the world would have you believe in universalism to say it's no matter what God you look to. They're all the same as long as you're wholeheartedly devoted to your God. This is the lying, blinding work of the enemy. Listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Sarah, I'd love to put this on the screen if possible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 3 through 7. 
If, if it's not possible, it's okay. Paul writes this way to the church in Corinth. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I want you to get that reality. Paul is connecting when he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's going all the way way back to the Genesis creation story where God said, let there be light. He's saying that's the same God. Genesis opens in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Paul's saying that God who created it all has now shown himself in the face of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is we've had all these pieces of the puzzle and there's the box, there's the cover, it's Jesus. He's our only hope. And our prayer is that in the gospel, God would open the eyes of the blind. That the light of the gospel would transfer people from darkness to light. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. Now, as you can imagine, this message is polarizing. People are divided. The gospel of Jesus either shakes and awakens us or stirs us to anger. And that's what happened. So the second thing I want us to see, second key I'd like for you to see is that Jesus is building up the family of God. He's building up the family of God. When Saul preaches this message, he's persecuted by his old pals, right? He's talking to the guys he used to run with. He's talking to all the people who used to be like, yay, Saul, good to see you, buddy. How are you doing? And then he comes in and he's like, let me tell you something. Jesus is the son of God. And they're like, oh, man, where's my rocks? We've got to take him out. This is not good. So Saul is being persecuted by his old pals and he's protected by his new brothers. His former friends are now his enemies. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but these friends, their loyalty for Saul only lasted as long as that friendship proved useful for them. You know, that's how the world works. I don't know if you know it or not, but worldly friends are just there usually to use you. Now that it's no longer personally beneficial for them to suck up to Paul And love him at every turn. Now that he's preaching against the message they believe, it's actually more beneficial to be his enemy than it is to be his friend. And how quickly the loyalties shift. So quickly that um, Saul is the hunted traitor. I don't know if you've noticed in the text, but these guys are waiting for him at the gate of the city, trying to catch him so they can kill him in the middle of the night. 
gotten so bad that Saul's a basket case. It was a stab in the dark. Thank you. For the, yeah. So uh, his friends actually lower him through a hole in the wall in a basket to, to get him out. And now you get the joke, right? Um, all right. So here's the thing, though. When Christ changes you, some of the friends that you had before have to go. Do you know that? Some of the old you, some of the old relationships, some of the old stuff, it's got to go. You'll never truly take hold of all that Jesus has for you unless you let go of all the old stuff he saved you from. It's not that you have to leave those people behind. It's just you have a new mission in your friendship. So I want to call you, cut ties with people who are nothing but an anchor for you. Cut ties, embrace a new family, embrace a new mission. Go back to those people, but with the mission of bringing them to the other side. The best way to force this separation is simply to be bold with the gospel message. The truth about Christ is a natural divider. You don't have to separate yourself. Just tell them Jesus is their only hope. That's enough. People will either rejoice and receive that gospel message or they will revile and reject both the message and its messenger. So here's the question I asked at the beginning and I I want maybe you to take a few notes here. Some hate the good news of salvation in Jesus. And I ask this question, why? Why do people hate the good news of the gospel? And I want to give you a few reasons. One, self-righteousness. People say, what do you mean I need to be saved? I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. And they claim to be righteous in their own right. Secondly, personal guilt. Do you know that the gospel, before you can receive the good news of Christ, you have to receive the bad news that you're a sinner? It's it's required. It has to happen in that order. If I'm to believe in Jesus, that means I am a sinner who desperately needs to be saved. And he is my only hope. Personal guilt is a huge barrier for people. People don't want to own the fact that they're guilty. But in this setting in particular, when Saul says, guys, I'm telling you, Jesus is the son of God. Do you know that the first hurdle they would have had to jump to believe that is, uh oh, we killed him. Personal guilt. Wait, If we believe Jesus is the son of God, that means we killed the son of God. It's no different for you and I. In order to believe the gospel, it requires that we first believe we are guilty of sin. Third, autonomy. It's human nature. We love our own power. We love to be our own boss. You have people that reject the good news of the gospel because they say, you can't tell me what to believe. I believe what I want to believe. I'm my own boss. Autonomy. And that works well until you meet your creator. Then you realize you're not the boss. There is one Lord. And you will on that day bow your knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It will either be voluntarily or by force. There will not be a knee that is not bowed to King Jesus. 
Another reason people hate the gospel is because of deception. We read a moment ago how Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers and they're just deceived. You know, they say, well, my God or my system of faith, it works just fine for me. Or, you know what? I don't need any faith. I'm, I'm all good at doing my own thing. Let's just, you know, uh, live and let live. You know, that's good for you. Blinded, blinded. It's deception. And they hate the gospel because it's constantly peeling away at the blinding of the enemy. Peeling those layers. One more thing, and there's probably many more, but this one resonates with us today, is the leveling effect of the gospel. The leveling effect of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? You know, the Pharisees hated the gospel message because they wanted to be the elite class of people. And every time they interacted with Jesus, he was constantly acknowledging and lifting the lowly. Do you remember when Jesus had dinner with Simon the Pharisee and the, the, the woman with a shady past came in and washed his feet in the middle of dinner? And Simon was like, if you knew who this woman was, there's this, like Simon is elite and she's way down here. And yet Jesus commended her and rebuked him. Jesus has this effect. The gospel has this effect of leveling people. And we need to hear this in our world today. People thrive on horizontal comparisons. Doctor versus janitor. Black Versus white. Rich versus poor. Smart versus dumb. Whatever it may be. We, we thrive on horizontal comparisons. And in that, in that horizontal comparison, we like to put people in brackets. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus does not allow for any kind of class system. There are no class systems with Jesus. There is no ethnic advantage or disadvantage. There are no gender issues. There is no wealth gap. None of that. In Christ, every believer is advantaged. What do you mean? Well, every believer is rich in grace. Every believer is welcome to the king's table as a son. Every believer has the full inheritance of the son of God. There is no hierarchy as followers of Jesus. We all bow our knee and sing his praise. No matter our color, no matter how much is in our pocket, no matter what we do professionally, it does not matter. And I want you to know these Pharisees hated that about Christ. They loved to use religion for their own self-exaltation and for the suppression of the people. May that never be the case. Jesus is the great leveler. Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People hate the gospel because it robs them of their own power and attributes all of that to Christ. He is God and he is the Savior. Third, third key to this text, and it's really written into sort of a summary passage. 
is Jesus is multiplying the church. Just a few words here. Luke takes a moment, as he does all through the book of Acts, he just takes a moment here and there. He did it in chapter 2, again in chapter 4, and here we are in chapter 9 with the shortest sort of state of the union, if you will, type of update on how the church is doing. This one verse summary is pretty amazing if you consider the stark contrast of its context. Amidst death threats, risky basket extraction missions, And the church, the Bible says, the church had peace. Isn't that wild? They're trying to kill Saul. Everybody's scrambling to save him. Wait, man, we're going to have to slip you through the gate at night. And yet Luke writes in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Even though they just welcomed in their harshest persecutor. Now, I don't know if we feel that. But the Bible says that um, through some persuasion, Barnabas said, hey, listen, guys, I've been with this guy. Uh, He heard from Jesus on the road. I watched him preach all in Damascus. I I know this is going to be a hard pill to swallow, but he's actually now a Christian. He's actually a follower of Jesus. We need to accept him. We need to welcome him in. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? Now, get this. This is in Jerusalem where Paul has recently dragged them out of their homes and had them in prison. Potentially, you have a wife who's standing here listening to Barnabas say, we need to accept him. And she's like, but my husband's still in jail because of him. And yet they welcome him in. This is wild. They welcome in their harshest persecutor who had murdered some of their closest friends and family, had them arrested. And yet, Luke says that the church was being built up. There seems to be a lot of things to fear, so much to be worried and anxious about, but they, the Bible says they walked in the fear of the Lord. They walked in the fear of the Lord. I think about Ananias for a moment with that phrase. Do you remember how hesitant Ananias was to go to Saul? He said, Lord, wait, I mean, I've heard about this guy. He's trouble. He killed Stephen. He's been arresting our people. This is this is bad. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm scared of Saul. And the Lord said, go. And you know what Ananias did? He went. Why? Because he walked in a greater fear. He had to weigh out two fears. What would Saul do to me? Hmm. What will God do to me? And he said, I think I better do what God says. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. All other fears found their place in the shadow when the light of the glory of God shone. In the midst of such turmoil, so many reasons to be at odds with one another, they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The comfort of the Holy Spirit. I think about what um, these believers are saying to one another, how they're comforting each other through affliction. And I think about how we as a family must do the same. Paul writes later to the church in Corinth and he says that the God of all comfort, 
He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. If you're struggling with an affliction, a struggle, a hurt, a pain, there's purpose in it. Be comforted in the Holy Spirit and let the Lord use that to be a healing agent to others who are hurting. Again, there's hopeful contrast amidst some of the hardest opposition. The Bible says the church multiplied. Now just one moment here. The places mentioned, Luke writes, and he says the church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. We should note that there are many local churches meeting in these cities. I mean, meeting in homes, they're gathering in small pockets. And these are churches, right? They're, they're small pockets of people, maybe 20, 30, 40 people huddled together. That's a family of people studying the word, worshiping Christ, praying together. Those little churches. And yet Luke writes and he says, the church in Judea, Galilee and Samaria. The beautiful thing is that's true of us here today, too, that. The fact that there are many local churches that are yet unified in one broader church. I think about our friendship with another local church. You know, we're here as Mountain View Church and right across the way is Grace Fellowship on Fort McClellan. These are these are two separate churches and yet unified one in mission and vision. And I think about how if Paul wrote today to the church in Calhoun County. His words would be addressed to every believer. Not just our little church, but every believer. And so here's the truth that I I want to sort of bring that line of thinking down to one reality. This early church in Acts is not just growing by addition. Where it's one big group that they continually add to. No, it's growing through multiplication. Now that means... That more than just people are being added to the group, it means that new groups are being formed. So in other words, this is not just a disciple-making movement, it's a church-planting movement. More leaders and pastors are being raised up. More deacons are being appointed to serve the needs of the body like they did in Acts 6. More evangelists like Philip in Acts 8 are going to uncharted territories To proclaim Christ. The church is multiplying. Churches are being born. This is what our Jesus is doing. And it's a movement. Saul is joining the movement. Let me give you three quick takeaways. The first is this. Y'all lean forward for a minute. The first is this. We are rescued by the Son of God, the Christ. He's our rescue. He's God Himself in the flesh, the only Savior for the world. Jesus Christ is our hope. Secondly, we have that hope. And it's our mission to take that gospel to help open the eyes of the blind, both our our friends, our neighbors, the lost all around the world, That's why we go. That's why we give. That's why we send. That's why we pray is to see this movement advance. And then thirdly, Jesus is multiplying his church. I want us to pray. I want you to pray that God would use us. 
to plant new churches. Uh, Before coronavirus hit, our elders were meeting and praying and talking. I was casting some vision for a desire for us to plant churches. Kind of a big, big vision. A 10-year plan of planting churches around the world. And it was uh, to my surprise, the guys that had been here much longer than I said, hey, that's been our dream all along, actually. We've been kind of setting aside money for 10 years to to do that. It's been a priority. We've, We've just, for whatever reason, not been able to make it happen yet. So we talked and prayed and began pursuing some real steps in in that direction. And then coronavirus hit, and so we've been sort of on pause with that. But here's what I want to tell you, church. We don't just exist to gather in people into this building. Amen? We want to send the church to the world. We want to raise up leaders. We want to raise up pastors and send them out. There's coming a day where we're going to send out our best and brightest. And it's going to be tough to say goodbye. But we're going to send them out with our support, with our prayer, with our love and with some of our people. We're going to send people. I'm just dreaming aloud with you because I want to be about what Jesus is about. And the Bible tells us that he's multiplying churches to grow his kingdom. So three things, three takeaways are this one. Jesus is the Son of God, and He alone rescues. Two, that's our message to the world. Let's take it faithfully to our co-workers, neighbors, and friends. And three, let's join Jesus in a movement to plant churches, to make disciples and plant churches around the world. Amen?